0: Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith's weekly sermon podcast. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series Ecclesiastes, Life Under the Sun. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton.
1: Well, today we're going to look at uh, chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Let me remind you, as I believe that all of you know, that the chapters and verses that we have in the Scriptures are just simply artificial structures to help us with our reading and keeping place of things, uh, but they're not original to the Scriptures, so we're not breaking any rules by jumping from chapter 6 on into chapter 7, and I believe that you're going to see the flow of Solomon's argument that we really need to look at all of this together. So let's look together, starting in verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of man, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity." Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And the day of prosperity be joyful and that a day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord our God, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip in conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our passage in verse 10 and following begins with a three-part description, presumably of God. His foreordination, His omniscience, His omnipotence, followed by a warning for our many words, and then three questions, which if you look at the questions can actually be summarized into two essential questions, which are, who knows what is good for you, and who knows what will happen to you? Proposed answers to these questions, of course, abound. But theorizing is unnecessary. The answer to the two questions is quite simple, isn't it? It's simple. The Lord knows. But the questions aren't simply asking for identification. They're, they're rhetorical in nature, contemplative even, implying omniscience specifically, but also the sovereignty of God. Indeed, God knows. Well, he knows because He is God. And so Solomon, in a sense, is implying Trust God. Because He is God and because He knows. The Westminster Confession of Faith, in its third chapter, says this. God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. So God has ordained, or what Solomon labels here, named, whatever has come, is, or will come to pass. As such, because He has ordained whatever comes to pass, God knows it all. There's nothing that God does not know. And Jesus said this, didn't He? Jesus said that God knows even when a bird falls. Or God knows the number of hairs on your head, or like thereof, right? <laughs> Jesus said that God knows the next word that is to come out of your mouth before you say it. God directs the heart of a king like streams of water, and God sustains and directs every molecule within creation. I always think about what R.C. Sproul said. There are no maverick molecules. (laughs) Therefore, God knows what will happen to you. Because, using the language of the Westminster Confession, He is the primary cause of everything that comes to pass. And He knows what is good for you. Why does He know what is good for you? Because Scripture says He knows our frame he remembers we are dust. From dust we came. Yet yet we were made in the image of God. Made in the image of God to reflect his glory. Scripture says that you and I are fearfully and wonderfully made. But made not the sovereign. Not God, but man. Not the divine, but dust. Not the creator, but created. And so Solomon leads us to ask, then why then do we dispute His providence? Why do we argue with God as it were? Perhaps not in so many words, but in our attitudes and in our actions. When it comes to this life, all of us are guilty of this. Let's be clear, when it comes to this life, we think that we know what is good, tomorrow better, and ourselves best. In our, as James calls it, in our boastful arrogance, we presume that tomorrow will be like today. But it's a faulty presumption, isn't it? In fact, when James is teaching on this, he just stops and says, what's your life? Think about that. What's your life? James says, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And I mean, not only do we not know what is tomorrow, we don't even know if we're going to be here. While the presumptions of our vapored existence leave us oftentimes irrationally exuberant, when adversity shows up, it always surprises us, doesn't it? When adversity shows up at our door, I might add unwelcomed, it always surprises us. Where did that come from? Why are you back? Right? And then... We are either angered in our distrust and disbelief, or we are sobered into a sanctified seriousness that would never come but for the grace of God. And so what I want us to look at starting out in this passage is I want us to look at the grace of mourning. Now you think, well, how can that be? Let's unpack this together. Let's start by looking at the grace of mourning. At the beginning of, and I mean the beginning like the first paragraph, of his magisterial work, the Institutes of Christian Religion, John Calvin writes this, "...the whole sum of our wisdom, wisdom that is, which deserves to be called true and assured, broadly consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves." And I remember as a student first reading that and thinking, what? Are you kidding me? That's how you start your institutes of the Christian religion? I was surprised that the great theologian would couple the knowledge of God with knowledge of ourselves. But then you read on. And Calvin explains further, saying that the purpose of knowing ourselves is to show us, quote, our weakness, misery, Vanity and vileness to fill us with despair, distrust, and hatred of ourselves, and then to kindle in us the desire to seek God. Now, Seeking God is not typically what we think of when we think of the purpose of self-knowledge. And quite candidly, we don't want a clear picture of ourselves either. You say, well, maybe I do. Well, think about it this way. Who wants to grapple today or tomorrow with their own weakness? To acknowledge their own misery? To gaze into the reflection of their own vileness and vanity? I mean, it's enough to make you despair, to distrust and loathe yourself. And I ask you, who in the world wants that? Well... We would rather a birthday party, if I may summarize Solomon's argument. We would rather a birthday party than a funeral. But the question, and this is where Solomon's leading us the question is will cake and confetti impact your life as substantively as gathering with the church militant to mourn the passing of a beloved saint? Today, funerals are out of vogue. We would rather amuse ourselves to death than mourn the dead. Carl Truman observes, quote, "...Christian attitudes to death are too much in accord with the age's strategies of distraction and denial. We often judge Christian accommodation to the world in terms of lax attitudes of sex and sexuality." But if our rebellion against nature is more fundamental, then attitudes to death may be a more significant measure of our worldliness. Take the creeping intrusion of celebrations of life into Christian churches as the default liturgy of death. And what Truman observes is Solomon's point. We'd rather gather for a service of mirth then mourning, subsequently denying the devastation of death and ignoring the vulnerability and the mortality of those left behind us. If I may summarize, wisdom is the funeral. In the history of the church, funerals have been important gatherings of the saints. In our particular tradition as Presbyterians, funerals have always been, they've always been held. The gathering of God's people to a funeral has been appropriate. It's been our custom because funerals are not for the deceased, are they? Therefore, the living. Not to celebrate, but to mourn. Once upon a time, and this is definitely before my time, probably before your time too, once upon a time, churchyards were filled with gravestones. Sydney and I, when we were in Columbia, South Carolina, got to go to... First Presbyterian Church, there where Sinclair Ferguson used to pastor, and today uh, many of you know Derek Thomas is the preacher there today. But one of the things that we loved is walking through the grounds surrounding the church, and there are gravestones that date back to pre Civil War era. And it was so humbling and yet exalting to come to terms with the mortality but to understand that once upon a time you gathered for worship on the Lord's Day and you went by Aunt Ruthie's gravestone. And it reminded you, we're mortal. Today, our cemeteries are on the outskirts of town, conveniently located out of sight. And I might add, in our culture, conveniently located out of mind. While our culture is obsessed With violence and death confined to our media entertainment, we aren't comfortable talking about death. Funerals go unplanned because we'd rather avoid the morbid, and I quote, topic. Claiming to be wise, our mirth renders us silly and shallow. And here Solomon confronts our superficiality. Sorrow, he says, is better than laughter. What? Better than? Are you kidding me? I love to laugh. I'm not going to break into the Mary Poppins song, which immediately comes to mind. I love to laugh. What are you kidding me? Mourning is better than laughter? Solomon, what do you mean? And then he doubles down and he says, you fool, wisdom is in the house of mourning. Why? Why? we got to get this. Don't miss this. If the person next to you is asleep, nudge them. you want to get this. Why does Solomon say that, la- that mourning is better than laughter? Why does he tell the fool, go, become wise by going to the house of mourning? Why? For two reasons. Number one, because death is our enemy. And number two, because death preaches like an evangelist. Death is our enemy, and death preaches like an evangelist. Death takes our loved ones from us, but it also forces us to consider our lives in light of death. What will be said of you at your funeral? What is your life preaching, is it Christ crucified and resurrected or the accumulation of trinkets, amusement of the trivial, adoration of the temporal. Daniel, Daniel Fredericks, a scholar, a Hebrew scholar writes that death is the great mentor for diligence, sobriety, love, generosity, reverence, and humility. Death forces the most profound questions to be asked, but mercilessly mocks those who sleep through its lessons. And so why did I title the first point, The Grace of Mourning? You get it now. That's where Solomon's taking us. Mourning is a grace of God, revealing the thievery of death. And sobering us to the reality of our mortality. And as such, God gives us wisdom. The grace of wisdom. Which is the next theme that I want us to look at in this passage. The grace of wisdom. Solomon says this, The day of death is better than the day of birth. And the Apostle Paul agrees with this, doesn't he? When Paul said, to die is gain. In Christ, we are assured that to be absent from this life is to be present with the Lord. A truth in which we hope. But what about the span between birth and death? You know, this thing we call life. What about that? Are we simply living to die? Or is there purpose in our living under the sun? And if so, if there is purpose in our living, how should we then live? Solomon says, there is purpose and I commend living wisely. There is purpose in this life. And Solomon says, and because there is, choose wisdom. What does the way of wisdom look like? Starting in verse 5. Solomon says, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. But what? But our carnal ears are attuned to the siren's song, ever enticing us to destruction, so our hearts must be taught and reproved and corrected and trained by the Word of God. Solomon says, as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. Think of the imagery here. It's like leaves and twigs used to start a campfire. What happens to the leaves and twigs when the fire starts? They're gone. That's like foolish laughter. It just burns out quickly. The amusements of our day... Burn out quickly. But the flame of God's wisdom is eternal. Solomon says, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart, and better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. But we are indeed prone to wonder in our carnal desires. But the wisdom of God... The wisdom of God teaches us to get off the racetrack of temptation, to slow down, to consider the way of the Lord, to consider His loving purpose in all things, even, even when it makes no sense at all. Solomon says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for angry lodges In the heart of fools. In this life, you will be wronged. And I will be wronged. And you will be hurt. And I will be hurt. But God gives us the grace to forgive. And He also gives us the wisdom to do it expediently. Only the fool harbors anger. Resenting rather than blessing. Keeping account rather than bestowing Grace. Solomon says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? Because your memories and my memories are biased. I read a scientific study this week that talked about why we perceive certain things in our culture the way we do. And consistently, over and over again, we believe the good memories, we don't remember the tragedies, and we tend to think over and over, culture after culture, across the world, over and over, hundreds and hundreds of years, that things are worse today than they were before. And Solomon says, that is not the way of wisdom. He says, wisdom teaches us not to dwell on the glory days, but to enjoy the gift that is today. Solomon says, wisdom is good with an inheritance An advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. This is something we know. We know there are benefits to wealth. But we also know, all of us, there are also limits to it. Scripture says we're stewards. We're stewards of what God has entrusted us. With much And with less, we're stewards. But wisdom, wisdom is far more valuable than anything in an investment account. But wisdom has its limits too. As much as Solomon emphasizes the importance of wisdom, it has its limits. For example, wisdom cannot answer all of life's questions. But by God's design, it's far better to live wisely than foolish. Here's what the Apostle Paul says on this topic in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Therefore, consider carefully how you live. Not as wise, rather not as unwise, but as wise. Taking advantage of every opportunity because the days are evil. For this reason, do not be foolish, but be wise by understanding what the Lord's will is. But, the Lord does not leave us to our own efforts to derive His will, as if only the smarter, only the seeker could somehow find out and live God's way. No, The writer of Hebrews says that the Lord equips us with everything good that we may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. The grace of wisdom then, it's part of your sanctification, it's part of my sanctification, as God is working in and out and through us by His Holy Spirit. And it is lived out dependently, upon god's gracious provision in christ and it's his wisdom that teaches us what is good for us even when we can't see what is good for us ourselves and so that's where i want us to look at this third point is i want us to look at also often considered an oxymoron i want us to look at the grace of adversity the grace of adversity In his book, The Crook in the Lot, some of you, I would imagine, have read it, 17th century Scottish theologian Thomas Boston expounds upon chapter 7, verse 13 in Ecclesiastes. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? And by lot, Boston means our lot in life. And by the crook in our lot, Boston means the adversity that we encounter in this life. It's what the Apostle Paul refers to, the sufferings of this present time. And Boston says in his insightful book that we are to consider this. We must first understand, quote, whatsoever crook there is in one's lot, it is of God's making. Now think about that. If God is sovereign, and He undoubtedly is, then God has made the day of prosperity as well as the day of adversity. Which is what Solomon says in verse 14. As such, adversity is a common characteristic of the fallen human condition. Saint and sinner alike. But what we do is we look at our neighbor... And we look at our neighbor's life and we assume that they don't have it as bad as we do. Right? Solomon says, that's a fool's perspective. Comparisons tell us nothing. And they teach us even less. But here the Christian has the advantage over the unbeliever. The unbeliever faces adversity. The believer faces adversity. We're both human. Under the curse, life includes adversity. But here's the distinction, Christian. Listen closely. The Christian is able to see and to understand that we have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, prosperity and adversity, him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Thank God, not our will. And we know, we know this, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so you see, the child of God sees adversity differently. Because the child of God sees our Heavenly Father's loving purpose in it. The second thing that Boston draws out in his book and from this verse is that, quote, what God sees meet to mar, no one shall be able to mend his lot. (laughs) Which I love the way that he says that, but basically what he's saying is this, is that in our strength, we cannot change what God has ordained. This goes back to Solomon's point. You're not strong enough. You're not big enough. You're not God. God. Now, to be clear, this is not to say that we are not to pursue change in life. We are not determinist, let me say clearly. But what Boston is emphasizing is here is that we must see adversity in our lot as the easy yoke and light burden of Christ, that through it we may learn His gentle and lowly way, and that through it we may learn contentment, of God's good pleasure, to be content in the pleasure of God. As William Cooper teaches us to sing, God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. The crook And our lot is often not plain to our sight because we live here under the sun. For now we see in a mirror dimly, Paul explains, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. This side of glory, we do not, we will not, we cannot see God's sovereign purpose in everything that He has ordained. And if we interpret this through the folly of unbelief, we will wallow in our vanity and we will dive even deeper in our despair. But if we trust the Lord for our good and His glory, We will rest contented in His loving purpose, even in adversity. God knows what is to come, because He ordained it. And God knows what is good for you, because He ordained that too. Let us trust Him for His grace. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, We have heard the reading and preaching of your word, and so now we confess to you that we trust you. Though it be hard, notably much harder in the day of adversity than prosperity, and yet you have not left us to ourselves. In Christ, you have given us your spirit to indwell us, to lead us in dependence upon your provision we ask that you would give us the mind of Christ. Help us to see as we are to see in him. And give us the strength to endure that you may be glorified, knowing that in all things, your purpose for us is indeed your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.